Hello and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sean. And this is the podcast where we watch a tape and then we talk about it. Oh yeah, switching it up today. <laughs> switching it up by accident. So it's been a while since we last recorded. Yeah, sorry about that everybody. Uh, the old VCR broke down on us and yeah. it's incredibly hard to find a working VCR these days, unless you want to pay an arm and a leg. Yeah, people are really ripping you off, and there's no way to tell how good their VCR is, and they're asking like $100 for them. And people are really flaky on Craigslist and uh, Facebook Marketplace, or whatever you call it. Yeah, unfortunately, those are the people that were trying to sell them for like $20, and I guess they didn't care that much about getting 20 bucks. You know, I blame the massive popularity of this podcast uh, for uh, repopularizing the VHS tape. Do you think that's what it is? No, definitely not. <laughs> so we got another problem here. So not only are we delayed in the podcast because we didn't have a working v- VCR for a while... But then when we finally got a working VCR, Sean's old one from his childhood room. Thanks, Mom and Dad. I opened up the Matilda case to see Madeline in Paris. Yes, we for the our big 50th episode, we are supposed to do Matilda. And I know all those Matilda heads out there who have seen the Broadway show and have read the Raw Doll book and are big fans of the movie growing up were just... Pulling their hair out, waiting for this big 50th episode in which we do Matilda. But sadly, child Lindsay really screwed us over. Yep. So we don't actually have a copy of Matilda, and we couldn't watch it. Sean tried to find a copy. But we've set a precedent for this. Yeah. This isn't the first time we've done sort of a bait and switch. Uh, this is the first time you've done it. I remember one of my uh, tapes broke down and we, I had to do something else. And another time I canceled Tom and Huck for political reasons. <laughs> that I don't really want to get into right now. Oh. Uh... did Mad Max instead. But yeah, I think you had a legit reason for switching yeah. it up. And I think that you... Did an admirable job of picking a real showstopper, a real zeitgeist movie for our 50th episode. What it came down to was I was looking through our tapes and I realized, tried and true, when all else fails, get Tom Hanks. Oh yeah, and Meg Ryan. And Meg Ryan. Because we did already do You've Got Mail. So obviously we have to do Sleepless in Seattle because they are connected. And someday we will complete the trilogy with Joe versus the Volcano. Which we have mentioned a lot <laughs> on this show. Well, you know, I think that you can tell a lot about a person uh, when you ask them what their favorite Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan team-up is of those three movies. And if they say it's Joe versus the Volcano, you might want to ask them to leave. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll revisit this question at the end of the podcast. Because yeah. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about this movie. I have a lot of thoughts about this movie. We're both confirmed big You've Got Mail fans. We both gave that our yes. top score yes. of Buy It, uh, as I recall. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. Wait, really quick. I do think another connected movie is When Harry Met Sally. Which is a perfect movie. And I didn't realize why they felt... When we were watching Sleepless in Seattle, I kept thinking about When Harry Met Sally, and I couldn't figure out why, other than that Meg Ryan is in both films, and then Billy Crystal looks a little bit like Tom Hanks. Like, they've got that sweet everyman look with curly hair. Mm -hmm. But Nora Ephron actually wrote When Harry Met Sally. 
And I somehow didn't know that. I didn't it know that either. It makes a lot either. of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Let's get some ads out of the way here. We got some real winners on this tape. This is a, uh, not a reissue. This is an authentic 1993 release oh, of yeah. Sleepless in Seattle. This was a huge commercial hit. Also a modest critical hit. But I feel like this was, when I say it's like a zeitgeist movie, I mean, everybody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. Tristar was apparently getting 20 to 30 calls a day from uh, viewers of the movie asking <laughs> what tiramisu is. Just because Rob Reiner mentioned it in reference to intimate relationships? I think there's sort of a double entendre that it yeah. might also be a sex act. but uh, Were people calling to find out what the sex act was or were they calling to find out what the delicious Italian dessert was? My understanding of that anecdote is that they didn't understand what tiramisu was. Period. Period, yeah. I mean, this was pre-Google, so I guess it's understandable. Yeah, you don't have... Meg Ryan's journalistic prowess. I mean, if you've never had it, you've never had it. And I I think that there are rabid enough fans that they had to know every nook and cranny of this movie. And for some reason, they thought calling the the studio that put it out would be the most efficient way rather than looking up tiramisu in a dictionary. We had dictionaries back then. But would it have been in the dictionary? It's an Italian food stuff. Oh, I'm sure it would have been. I'm imagining all these people like in panic stricken and asking their friends and family what tiramisu is because they watch this movie and when it comes up it's when rob reiner is explaining to tom hanks what the dating world is like now and sort of introducing him to these new ideas that everyone else knows but tom hanks has been missing out on since the 70s yeah that's because a he pretty was good scene wife. yeah it's a good scene but it's also i guess the audience just felt like they were out of the loop if they didn't know tiramisu What I was going to say about these ads is (laughs) these are a real time capsule um, because... We've never said that before. (laughs) (laughs) I would say more so than usual because this is hot off the presses. You've seen it in theaters. You love it. You've called TriStar to ask what tiramisu (laughs) is and now you gotta have it. And these are the ads that you get. You get... Steven Spielberg's immortal classic, Hook, starring, <laughs> starring Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. And there's With this... Julia Roberts' Tinkerbell, which I completely forgot. Yeah, yeah. I remember that they really pulled out all the stops uh, with mixed results. Um, that's one that I'm a little afraid to revisit. Because I... I I really loved Hook as a kid. Like, that was my preferred version of Peter Pan. Yeah, I really liked Hook as a kid, too. But I don't really remember it at all. Which it is might, always dangerous. Yeah. It might be best left as sort of a colorful fever dream of <laughs> Rufio and uh, and Shmi. And it was now at fourteen ninety five or less. Yeah, this is the weird thing. There's a silver box in the uh, bottom right quadrant of the screen that says now for fourteen ninety five or less for the entire Hook commercial, and then it switches to an ad for A League of Their Own, another Tom Hanks joint, also with Gina Davis and Madonna. Oh, I love Gina Davis. But that box ticks up to 1995 or less. So it's a want... higher value. <laughs> yeah, apparently. It seems like a value judgment on the studio's part, which is very funny to me. Because $5 is quite a bit. It's a big leap. And, I mean, Hook is a... You know, if nothing else, it I think it's a bigger budget film. Yeah. Like it's a it's you know a, a swashbuckling epic, whereas 
a league of their own is a you know a baseball comedy but i guess they assume those tom hanks heads are gonna shell out a little extra to get their their man on vhs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then we're treated to one of my favorite vhs curios which is an ad for the soundtrack and it's not just <laughs> one soundtrack the soundtrack was so popular they decided to make a second not soundtrack but a sort of yeah to the soundtrack i mean this is something that would happen sometimes when a movie was just so gigantic because the narrator of this ad says the number one soundtrack in america you know what exactly that means is a little vague was it the best-selling one of 93 is it the best-selling one of all time? They then segue to, you know, assuming that you've already bought that soundtrack. Yeah, you've you, got to have the Sleepless know. in Seattle soundtrack. They're now shilling uh, more songs for Sleepless Nights. And you can get this on compact disc or audio cassette. It's basically a bunch of songs from a lot of the same artists that were on the original soundtrack. Or just love songs in general. They were just like, oh yeah, this is lovey-dovey and romantic. It's like Nat King Cole, Jimmy Buffett, Carly Simon, Clarence Frogman Henry. Hey, Doris Day is on there. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's a very eclectic soundtrack. Of course, you've got Tony Bennett because it's a 90s movie. But basically what this More Songs for Sleepless Nights is, is it's songs inspired by the movie. Yeah, they weren't actually featured in the movies. It's clearly just a cash grab. Yeah, it's definitely a cash grab. I remember... This isn't quite as egregious, but I remember uh, Titanic and Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion did this also, where they put out a second disc of just more music that was in the movie. But they were actually in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe so, yes. And I mean, we didn't check every single of the 13 songs on the track list. It's possible one of these is in the movie. It's possible, but my understanding is these are songs that weren't in there. And when I look at this track list, it, it, they don't they don't seem familiar to me. No, they don't. Um and it's also different from a movie putting out a soundtrack that's like the score uh-huh. and another one that's the song. The like these songs, are these yeah. are just two two albums put out for the same movie. One of them's music in the movie, and if you're just jonesing for more, uh, here's another disc Here of songs that weren't in the movie, but the album has the visage of Tom Hanks yeah. and Meg Ryan on it. Here you go. You never have to sleep again. Yes. So tell us about this tape. Was this a movie that you really liked growing up? Like, when did this come into your life? I grew up with this movie. I can't remember how young I was when I first saw it, but I was probably fairly young. It's a pretty innocent movie. There are different... Any any of the kind of sexual references would have gone way over my head. So I saw it pretty young, and I remember really enjoying it. I watched it once in college because I found out my roommates had not seen it. So I forced a couple of them to watch it because I thought it's kind of a classic. It's one of those movies that you just kind of think everyone has seen, and it's part of the kind of cultural pop cultural conversation at different times. Although maybe not so much anymore. I think it still is. You think it still is? I I, guess it is. I feel like part of its reputation is it's kind of the go-to romantic comedy or chick flick that people sort of will reference. Like whether or not they've even seen it or understand references from it, it's kind of thought of in that way. And it it seems to be universally liked. I'm sure there are people out there that don't like it. Like I know one of my roommates wasn't super keen on it when we watched it. She was like, yeah, I enjoyed it, but it's not really my thing. 
the more I've watched it as I've gotten older, I don't connect with it quite as well. Like I don't, I still enjoy it. It's still a really fun movie, but the romantic portion of it doesn't, doesn't quite work for me anymore, which is sort of interesting. So my, my perception of the film and what it is and what it means to me has kind of shifted over the years. Do you know when the first time you saw it was? Um, the first time I saw it was with you like a year and a half ago. Okay. So I didn't actually grow up with this movie, but I didn't grow up with You've Got Mail either. And I really enjoyed that the first time I saw it. Um, I can't remember, did we watch You've Got Mail together first, or did we watch Sleepless in Seattle first? I saw Sleepless in Seattle first, but you mentioned that you thought I might like You've Got Mail more. Yeah, so, I figured you would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also watched another movie to prepare for this podcast. An Affair to Remember. Which is heavily referenced in this film, and as we were watching it, I've seen An Affair to Remember because I'm obsessed or I used to be obsessed with Cary Grant. I think you're still obsessed with Cary Grant. Probably. And I've seen most of his movies. <laughs> when we were watching this this time, I told Sean we kind of need to watch it because it's like you've got mail and shop around the corner. It's really good to see both, to kind of see how Nora Ephron ties it in, especially since this is actually heavily referenced in multiple scenes of dialogue. The characters, especially Meg Ryan and Rosie O'Donnell, are watching this movie and reference it, and it later comes up in Tom Hanks's side of the story. And even though the plot doesn't exactly mirror the story, like, shop, well, I mean, Shop Around the Corner, I think, has more in common with You've Got Mail than yeah. this has. Well, because I think You've Got Mail was very much inspired by Shop Around the Corner, whereas this... I think does a heavy nod to it, but it's not a remake or a reinterpretation of it. Yeah. One of the really interesting things about their use of An Affair to Remember in Sleepless in Seattle is that in An Affair to Remember, Cary Grant and Deborah Carr fall in love together in the same physical space, and then they're apart for a lot of the film. And this kind of does the reverse where they're apart and sort of have that falling in love going on before they actually meet, which is at the end of the film. So they actually are only together in the same physical space for maybe two minutes of the film. Kind of this love is magical sort of thing where these two strangers on opposite sides of the country cosmic forces have them fall in love in a way. I mean, it's really set on love at first sight. You have to make that jump and that leap of faith to believe in love at first sight to really buy what happens in this movie because they have no screen time together. Yeah, And it's, it's not even love at first sight, it's love at first word. She falls in love with him while she's listening to the radio. So Meg Ryan is engaged to the sweet but dorky Bill Pullman. Uh, who is wasted in this movie. <laughs> a you, little bit. If you want to see a great Bill Pullman role, watch While You Were Sleeping. While You Were Sleeping, he's great in. Yeah. He's so charming. Really quick, one of the things that I mentioned <laughs> while we were watching this movie is, I think it was a mistake to cast Bill Pullman because he's the only actor who can like be more sympathetic than Tom Hanks. And you're sort of or pitting... As or at least as sympathetic... And you're pitting those two against each other, and it sort of puts Meg Ryan in the middle of a very unfortunate situation. And then you suggested that it should be Richard Gere because he's not sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that they should have switched roles, that in yeah. uh, Pretty Woman it should have been Bill Pullman, and Richard Gere should have been this guy. 
So she's engaged to Bill Pullman, and you kind of see them together, and they establish that relationship, and they, they let you know he's not that great. And so she ends up, when she's driving one night to go visit Bill Pullman's family for Christmas, she hears this radio station, this radio show, where Tom Hanks' son has called in to say his dad needs a new wife. And so that kind of sets up her interest in him. And so she becomes an obsessive stalker who hires a private investigator. She goes and spies on him in Seattle. (laughs) And then um, they eventually meet on the Empire State Building after his son sneaks away to meet her. Runs away from home and a horrifying indictment of our our airlines. And uh, then they walk out of the Empire State Building holding hands and we're left to assume that they're going to live happily ever after. Did I add too much color? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I I've, I I think that was a great synopsis of that movie. And if you had told me that that was the synopsis of one of the most popular romantic comedies <laughs> of all time, I would have said you were crazy because what a crazy storyline for a movie. I think... I'm trying to imagine if you swap the genders and how terrifying Meg Ryan... Like, you could make a horror movie if you swap the the characters and change the music. For the whole second act of the movie, Meg Ryan lies to her employers. She she uh, works as a journalist, right? Yeah. She says that she's working on a story and goes off to Seattle to stalk Tom Hanks. <laughs> and almost and, gets hit by a car because she's so mesmerized by his physical presence in what was almost a horrifying uh tribute to an affair to remember oh god yeah actually i wonder if that was like a I, little I, bit of a reference there or... i think so um in an affair to remember deborah carr gets hit by a taxi as she's going up to meet Cary grant on the empire state building so that they can be together in love forever and she ends up crippled Another um, thing that I'm going to disagree with you uh, a little bit on in that synopsis <laughs> is saying that Bill Pullman isn't that great because I think he's a great guy. It's just that the movie wants you to think, oh, he has lots of allergies. Okay, but- so he's. No- I feel like his character is nothing more than just the sum total of his allergies. So me saying he wasn't that great wasn't my interpretation. I was letting the film's perspective pull uh, through there even yeah. though i forced my <laughs> perspective of meg ryan as a stalker i feel like he's a very nice character i do think that their relationship what's presented by the film is that they're really just kind of buddies that have a lot in common they don't really they're not a love match they don't have passion in their relationship early in the film when you first meet meg ryan and bill pullman you're getting to know their relationship they have them in separate cars they're totally in sync doing the same thing packing up their cars going to the same spaces and that sort of thing but they're not together they can't instead of sharing a car and being more intimate they have this kind of forced physical separation and i feel like that's the film giving us the message that it's just not they just don't have a connection a real intimate connection it's a pretty nuanced approach to this, and I feel like the easy way to have written this is that, uh, kind of like the Greg Kinnear character in You've Got Mail, where, mm-hmm. like, clearly this is not a good guy. Like, it's yeah. not a good fit. 
And there's a similar scene in You've Got Mail when Meg Ryan and Greg Kinnear break up and they're mutually like, yeah, I this is really not a good situation. Yeah, why were we And they're able this? to laugh about it pretty easily because clearly these are not people that are supposed to be together. Whereas I can't be help but be a little bit heartbroken in that scene at the end. Aww. when uh, So basically, it's they're in New York, and it's the night that she's supposed to meet up with Tom Hanks at the top of the Empire State Building. This is the other thing that's kind of interesting about Meg Ryan's character. She's making these plans to go build her re- wedding registry with Bill Pullman. But at the same time, she goes, oh, that means that I can I can go to the Empire State Building and meet Tom Hanks. Yeah, you and know, she even acknowledges that that's really messed up. I think it's a testament to Meg Ryan as an actor that her character is sympathetic and you're rooting for her when everything she her. does is like something a sociopath <laughs> would do. All of her decisions from stalking Tom Hanks while he's with his son. Watching him playing with his son. That's hiring really a private weird. detective to take pictures of him while he's at a restaurant yeah. with his date. Just being extremely invasive. Basically like radicalizing his son to run away from home. He was well, not acting out until her letter gets there. I mean, though, in her defense for that one, that specific one with the son, she doesn't know that she's in contact with the son. Cause, although she should have figured it out when she got a letter written child's handwriting do we ever see that letter i i don't quite remember we we don't we don't see it but we know that he and the girl wrote it i guess they typed it that makes a little more sense but he probably signed it right there's it has to be some kind of well anyone can do a scribble to look like a signature that's true but it did use kid words in it and he had really poor grammar I mean, that might have been a red flag that, oh, maybe this guy isn't that bright. This seems like a <laughs> child wrote this letter. I guess she dismissed it as, oh, he's an architect. He doesn't need to know how to write. There's just this heartbreaking scene where they sit down, they're having champagne, you know, they're engaged. They have a little joke where he orders a, a Dom de Louise bottle and- of champagne and they both laugh about that. It does one of those cutaways where she starts to tell him the plot of the movie, like everything that's happened so far. And when we get back and she's told him this whole crazy story, he, you know, kind of just nods his head. And what is the line that he says? He doesn't want to be settled for. Yeah. And, you know, you can tell that he's devastated, but he's sort of keeping it together is my read of it. She doesn't even do him the dignity of, like, spending the rest of the night with him because she has to run off to the Empire State Building. Which he kind Uh, of encourages her to do. But it's just, I don't know, there's just something so sad. And maybe just the way Bill Pullman plays it. where I mean, he's not in tears, he's not angry. He just, with quiet dignity, kind of like, you know, a certain president in Independence Day, has that gentle smirk. And I don't know, it's just, it's quietly just devastating what she's done to her fiancé. Like, even if they weren't meant to be together, even if she can't get over the fact that he's allergic to everything and he's kind of a milk toast, it's just so sad to me. And that, I can't get over that hurdle for the last scene when she meets him, uh, like, on top of the Empire State Building. It is kind of weird because she was just filling out a wedding registry at, like, all the stores in New York all day, too. It's, like, a little strange to me that this movie was such a massive popular hit when 
there's kind of that weird thing. I mean, it's sort of like Pretty Woman, too, where there's yeah. like certain leaps that you have to make to really be on board with all of this. And that's one that I can't quite make. I don't the... know why I thought of this, but it made me think of Maid of Honor, the movie that Sean knows I hate so I See, much. I'm curious to see. That's the Patrick Dempsey one. Yeah, it's Patrick Dempsey. He falls in love with his best friend, but he only falls in love with her after she's about to marry a really awesome Scottish guy. And normally when you have a love triangle thing going on, they try to make the other man unattractive in some way. Like maybe they're jealous or they have some kind of flaw that makes it okay for the girl to be stolen away or the guy to be stolen away, vice versa, you know? But in this case, he was really great and all they could be, all they could do was like, well, he wears skirts sometimes which are kilts. Uh-huh. And then uh, I think haggis was a problem. And meanwhile, isn't Patrick Dempsey like a big a womanizer? A womanizer and treated his friend kind of shitty and just had her as the only constant woman in his life and it was so convenient and he'd just sleep with everybody else. He was horrible. And it was like you're rooting for him not to get the girl the whole movie and he gets the girl. But essentially, I guess what I'm thinking, the connection I made with this is that while you don't hate Tom Hanks, you love Tom Hanks, but you're not really rooting necessarily for Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan to get together because you haven't seen them together. And Bill Pullman is still a really nice guy. The only problem he has is that he has really congested and he has some allergies. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's just such an odd thing where you have Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan who have some of the most incredible chemistry of any two actors, in my the, opinion. Really, though, that they manage to have chemistry in a film where they spend almost no screen time together well, is pretty interesting. Like, that's that's a feat. I didn't finish. I said in their other two movies together. Well, maybe just You've Got Mail. I, I'd have to revisit Joe versus the Volcano. But it seems like such a strange choice to not have them share any screen time and for Tom Hanks to not know that he wants to be with Meg Ryan until the last minute of the movie. Until he sees... Well, but now, I mean, they did they foreshadow it. They did have those other it. moments. Yeah, yeah. They, ha- they foreshadow it two other times when she went initially to stalk him. And they saw each other at the airport. And he had no clue who she was, but he just... There was some kind of magic. And then when she was watching him with his son out on the Seattle seas... Uh, in the bay or whatever they have from out the there. bushes from the bushes with her ski mask on <laughs> with her ski mask on but and then she almost when she's almost getting hit by a car he feels that twinge of something so i mean they they set it up but it's also just kind of it's really shallow right because unless you believe in that magic of love at first sight he's just looking at a woman and thinking man is she hot after the movie ended, you're like, I wonder what happened next. Like, do you think these people end up together? These people who know nothing about each other and have kind of been manipulated into this situation by a child. Because he and... probably doesn't even remember her name because he just heard her name from his son. I would feel a little resentment towards this person, especially if she admitted that, you know, she's been stalking him. And I wonder she's if kind she of the... ever would tell him that she hired a private investigator and stuff. I mean, if they're having an honest, open, like, relationship, then she should tell him all that stuff, right? But maybe she never did. Maybe if we saw that, you know, sequel, she never did tell him. 
Maybe that's why there was sort of a lukewarm reaction to You've Got Mail, despite the fact that You've Got Mail is a great movie, <laughs> is because I think that it was marketed kind of like, oh, let's catch up with these same characters later. Like it's, huh. I mean, like, I mean, different characters, but kind of like these are people that have been together a long time, but it's not that. They're actually new to each other. Yeah. One thing, too, that I was thinking of, you know, it's kind of shallow, this idea that he looks at her and can fall in love just on the vision of her, right? But then you also have her falling in love with him, listening to the radio, like the moment where you can kind of see her transitioning and really developing an interest in him is when she's listening on the radio and he's describing how much he loved his late wife. It's this feeling that she's not falling in love with him. She's falling in love with the idea of him loving her the way he loved his wife. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that also is kind of unsettling. We should mention that her letter is one of hundreds that are sent to this. I mean, well, it's, I guess they're sent to the radio station that are then forwarded to him. Yeah. Um. And it's, we get the idea that women across the country want to be with a man like this. Including his third grade teacher. <laughs> well, that might have been a joke. That might yeah. have been a joke. But it's I unclear. want to believe that they were being true. Yeah. And they make a very strange choice. They bring in Carrie Lowell uh, from License to Kill fame to play his late wife in sort of ghostly dream form. Yeah, that was an odd scene because they don't really tell you... Other than that she's wearing white, there's not really indication that he's having this vision of a dead woman. Yeah, my editor brain was saying I would cut that scene right out. Because we already get that he misses her. We don't... At that point in the movie, I was sort of like, it's nice that we haven't seen what she looks like. And then it's like, Carrie Lowell comes in. Really quick. So when the movie started, Sean said, uh, what did you say? You, you said, oh yeah, this has a really sad beginning and i said oh it's not that sad <laughs> it cuts to a graveyard fade in graveyard man and son bury mother oh yeah it is sad right at the beginning <laughs> i somehow i thought it started with bill pullman and meg Bryant. you know i should mention with all my problems with this movie i think all the actors in this are great oh everybody's I wonderful think, i mean even the kid actors um, you know, everyone has great chemistry. Rosie O'Donnell is so charming as the friend. But this leads me to another sort of hang up I have with this movie oh, where yeah. we have kind of, we're sort of set up to be in this, there's this huge ensemble cast for the first half of the movie. There's yeah. David Hyde Pierce as her brother, right? Yes. You know, kind of another Frasier connection there. <laughs> Seattle, David Hyde Pierce, uh, call in radio show with a doctor. You've got Rob Reiner as Tom Hanks's friend. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Rosie O'Donnell. Her mother figures in it. They have a whole scene talking to each other where she's trying on her mother's wedding dress. Uh, Victor Garber, Rita Wilson, uh, who mm -hmm. is Tom Hanks's mm -hmm. wife at the time. Just all kinds of uh, character actors in this that just kind of disappear halfway through the movie. Yeah, and I think the thing that's hard. Is when I when I first knew this film, I knew just this film, right? I, I watched this and enjoyed it and loved loved it and found it really fun and romantic. But then I saw an affair to remember, which they mention over and over again in the film, and it's interesting because affair to remember is pretty pared down. They have a pretty 
They don't introduce a ton of characters. They have just as many as they need. But it's really focused on Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. And you just don't have that really firm focus in this. I do like the scenes of these other characters, but I almost wonder if it would have it wouldn't have felt so jarring if maybe they'd I don't know, maybe consolidated these characters a little bit. Yeah. Like maybe the Victor Garber character could have also been Rob Reiner's role and I don't know. Or like did we need to meet the two guys that she works with and have a scene with Meg Ryan, Rosie O'Donnell and the two these two guys from her work having a conversation? Could we have just had Meg Ryan and Rosie O'Donnell talking. Are you the most upset about the ensemble cast just because that meant that David Hyde Pierce's character didn't get developed more? He's in like two scenes. I could have done with more David Hyde Pierce. The second scene he's in, he barely talks at all and it's her visiting him in his office, but talking to herself pretty much. I like also that he's basically playing Niles. He's again this this, uh, kind of pretentious uh, upper middle class... uh, pseudo-intellectual. I think, I don't know, I'm in the, I think that You've Got Mail is a superior film, and it's so weird to me that Sleepless in Seattle is the one that's thought of as... Because this is something that we did address a little bit in You've Got Mail. It You've Got Mail became dated fairly quickly because of the attachment to AOL, whereas this, while the styles and stuff are a little dated, it's a bit more timeless if that makes sense. Although the stuff that they say about dating and what is it, women going Dutch and everyone eating tiramisu, that's, that's a little dated. <laughs> yeah, the, the, everything Rob Reiner says is a little dated. But I feel like you have to make more leaps here. I feel like the coincidences in You've Got Mail aren't quite as extreme as in this. Yeah, and the thing, the thing that I really like about You've Got Mail is that you understand and you can see them falling in love in real time in the film. Whereas for this one, you don't really get to see them fall in love. You get hints at it, but you don't really see that happen until the end when they meet on the Empire State Building. And that the Empire State Building meeting is such a huge symbol because this is relying on the romance and everything that they're trying to pull out of an affair to remember. Part of why they keep mentioning that movie and women keep crying about it in Sleepless in Seattle is to kind of tell you how romantic that moment is. But it's interesting that they have to use another film to show how how big the love is here. Yeah, and I'll also put my cards on the table and say in a fair to remember is a much better romantic film than this. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of women that cried over it in Sleepless in Seattle. I literally cried last night when we were watching that last scene. In a, in an affair to remember. In, in an affair to remember. Yes. Not in Sleepless in Seattle. Okay. Sleepless in Seattle has never made me cry. Yeah, you know, I I want to love Sleepless in Seattle just because I don't want to be one of those guys. It's like, oh, Sleepless in Seattle, what a chick flick. Or, <laughs> I feel like that's almost a cliche, like thanks to like Adam Carolla and like that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, you sat there and you really enjoyed an affair to remember, so I think you get a pass on not being one of those guys. And I love You've Got Mail and a lot of other similar movies, but I think my hang-ups are are with uh and I guess we're sort of going into our buy it rented tape over it here, but I I'd, I'd say to summarize my hang-ups with this movie, Meg Ryan's whole path here and how they're I'm- separate and how yeah. that uh, I feel like I don't have that emotional connection to the ending of the movie, 
because I'm thinking, is she going to, you know, go back and move all her stuff out of Bill Pullman's apartment? And he's going to ask her, oh, how did that weird meeting on the roof of the Empire State Building go? I kept thinking, where are they going to stay tonight? Because Tom Hanks, she can't go back to her room with Bill Pullman. Maybe she does. Maybe she's like, oh, hey, it, it worked out. We're... Can you maybe go sleep on the couch Maybe now? she'll bring Tom Hanks and his son back to the hotel room. No, and then, like, Tom Hanks and his son, they don't even have a place to stay because he came, he went out there at random to go save his son from the wilds of New York. So then it's kind of like, do they spend the night together? Do they go to a hotel and, like, rent a, rent rooms next to each other and stare into each other's eyes all night? Like, it's it's not really clear. You know, we're just supposed to not think about these things and embrace the magic of love, I think, is what Nora Ephron would like us to do here. It's, it, and it's kind of funny because her Meg Ryan's character doesn't embrace the magic of love, right? That's something that she has to learn over the course of the film to really believe in. Because the, the beginning section that you have with her in the movie, she's having this conversation with her mom where her mom's talking about spark and passion and, you know, magic to love and all that stuff. And Meg Ryan's saying, oh, I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe in any of that. And then when she rips her mother's wedding dress, she says, oh, that must be a sign. She believes in the sign when it's a sign she shouldn't be with Paul Pullman. I think it's a very interesting way to do a rom-com where these people don't spend any time together and don't get to know each other, you know, are already kind of in, you know, very serious uh, domestic situations. Tom Hanks with his son and Meg Ryan with her fiancé, but I'm glad that there I... weren't a lot of similar movies yeah, as I a mean, result of this. I think Nora Ephron deserves a lot of credit for taking a film where you don't have your romantic leads in the in the same physical space together for more than two minutes for an entire film and it's a romance and making it compelling enough that it's this successful yeah i'd agree with that like that's pretty incredible to have accomplished that because it's it seems impossible (laughs) all right Lindsay. well this is your tape do you buy it rent it or tape over it i'm gonna give a rent it I mean, this is a movie that I will continue to revisit. I have a soft spot for it. And when I watch it, though, I mean, and I was really hard on it in this podcast, but it's it's kind of one of those movies that I used to enjoy because of that love story. And I, I, I made that leap of faith to believe in that while I watched it. It's something that I can still imagine while I watch it. But now it's also just kind of fun because while I'm watching, I can think about all these different aspects and wonder about how it works out. So I personally still really enjoy watching this movie, and I think it's worth seeing because, like Sean said, it's part of the zeitgeist. It has a lot of flaws. It has it has a lot of flaws. I'm on the fence here. I might give it the lightest of rentits because Ooh. I do think it's an important, you know, pop culture staple. I definitely prefer it to some of the other films of this type that we've had on the show, like Pretty Woman comes to mind. I think, you know, all the acting is great. The fact that I don't buy the central romance of the movie yet still enjoy it, that should be a fatal flaw for a rom-com, but it doesn't really affect my enjoyment a whole lot. I think that my worrying about Bill Pullman's character so much is more just a testament to how involved I got with it. So I'll give it a rent it. Why not? I think, and it's... A really wonderful cast. I mean, one of the things that I really like about this movie, and this is like this is a strong 
rent it from me. Like personally for myself, it's probably a buy it, but generally I'm saying rent it. But I mean, one of the things that I really do like about this film is that I feel some joy when I watch it. Like I don't feel really frustrated with it like I do with damn Maid of Honor. <laughs> uh, that wasn't a VHS era movie, was No, it, it was okay, not. It will never bad. be on this podcast. That's too bad. Um, Maybe I'll, I'll port it over to VHS. We'll find is, some way to get around the... Is that a loophole? <laughs> I don't know. I've never come across that. But I guess it's one of the things that I can say for this film is that the cast is so wonderful. Like, you get to see Tom Hanks be Tom Hanks and the relationship that he has with his son and the way he talks about his late wife is so charming. And then Meg Ryan is just delightfully freaky <laughs> in her, <laughs> her stalkerishness. So, I mean, it, and and Rob Reiner adds an interesting turn, although I know you were, you, you didn't really like Rob Reiner's flair in this. I like Rob Reiner. I thought that he was miscast as the best friend for Tom Hanks. I thought yeah. it came across as more of a father-son thing, mm-hmm. so it made... A lot of their, like, sex talk a little awkward, I thought. Rob Reiner's not that much older than him, is he? But he's, like, a big bearded guy. So he always... silver hair. He always reads older to me. That's true. But, yeah, the cast just pulls you through. And I still laugh at some of the jokes and all that stuff, even though I've seen it a bunch of times. (laughs) We were hard on it, but I am going to say it has some strong points. I think it's worth seeing. Yes, it makes a nice companion piece to... Joe versus the volcano, and you've got mail. One weekend, we need to just watch Joe versus the volcano, Sleepless in Seattle, and you've got mail, and then just pretend in our minds that we're seeing a continuous story of their lives together. Although, he would have the reaction seeing her at the airport, like, hey, didn't we... Didn't, weren't we, didn't we blow up a, an island together or something, <laughs> whatever happened in that movie? Oh, God. Joey versus Volcano has so many problems, like, that it's... I'm not sure if I prefer that or Sleepless in Seattle. I'd have to revisit it. Whoa, I definitely prefer Sleepless in Seattle. That's a movie that's improved in my memory, but you will eventually have to have it on the show. I guess because it's so weird. Roger Ebert famously was a huge Joe vs. the Volcano fan. Meg Ryan actually has three different parts in the film. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to make this tape heads the Tom Hanks podcast, but I do want us to watch Splash at some point, too. Yeah. I mean, he can't help. I mean, he's sort of the VHS guy. Oh, yeah. All right, John. What's our next episode? Well, we had some sad news that the great Roger Moore passed away. He, of course, played James Bond in seven uh, wild and wacky adventures. Uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. So I thought I'd pay tribute to him, have one of his Bond films on the show. So we're going to do 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, arguably his best, although you could make a case for Live and Let Die or For Your Eyes Only or maybe Octopussy. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I just wanted to say Octopussy. (laughs) I could see that in your eyes. Uh, it's his third film. I think it's probably his most iconic. It's got great villains. It's got a great Bond girl. Uh, I think it's uh, one that you'll enjoy. So, The Spy Who Loved Me. I've actually only seen three Bonds. Well, that's why I'm trying to uh, slowly curate the uh, sort of this mixtape of my favorite Bond films. And I just want to clarify, I don't mean three Bond films. I mean three 
Bonds, as in James Bonds. Is that Dalton Brosnan Craig? Yes. The latter day Bonds? Okay. Yes. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes on tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also contact us, tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs>